Imagine living your life after 50 and feeling energized and excited about your future. Welcome to the Women in the Middle podcast, the podcast for women who are ready to figure out what they want and create the life they deserve. Here's your host and master certified life coach, Susie Rosenstein. Hey there, welcome back to the podcast, Women in the Middle. I'm your host, Susie Rosenstein, your master certified coach and midlife mentor. And I'm so glad to be here with you again for this week's episode, which is all about why midlife is the perfect time to use genealogy to get some perspective on your family's history. Now, genealogy has always fascinated me. I've never become particularly knowledgeable about how to find out information and do those searches myself, but I have done a great job at being the keeper of the family photos. I've been using a website called Genie for about 15 or 20 years now to create a family tree, one of those online family trees. And I am fortunate to have some cousins that know a whole lot about family history. And we've been able to go back about five generations. It is totally amazing. Now, my genealogical story is a little complicated, too, because my father was adopted and my sister and I were step adopted. And actually, I don't know if you listened to this episode, but on episode 82 with Dr. Michael Grand, I did an episode called Midlife Reflections on Adoption and Assisted Reproduction. And if that floats your boat, head over to the show notes and you can get a link to that and hear much more about the specifics of adoption. Anyway, all of this talk about genealogy and family history leads up to the fascinating guest on today's episode. My guest today is Lori Hermance-Moore, and she just loves to find information. It's totally her jam. As a genealogist accredited by the International Commission for the Accreditation of Professional Genealogists, Lori Hermance-Moore helps clients craft their family's legacy. With 30 years of research experience, she reveals the forgotten families of her clients, ensuring that their stories are uncovered and captured for future generations. When she's not working with her clients or serving as a leader in state and national genealogical organizations, she loves diving into Midwest history, often on her bike on the many historic rail and canal trails in Ohio. Lori believes that learning about your family history can broaden your midlife perspective, that your legacy should be to leave more than money, and that you are the connection between generations. I just love that perspective, and I know you will too. And fun fact, she was also in marching band. Need I say more? You know I love me a good marching band story. <laughs> anyway, I know you're going to enjoy this episode. Hi, Lori. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Women in the Middle podcast. Hi, Susie. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, my gosh. A genealogist is in the house. I'm so excited. I love this topic. And I love that you're going to help us really appreciate how important it is to learn more about genealogy as midlife women. But before we get going, I really want to ask you some questions about you and about how this happened. How did you find your way here? Because I noticed in your notes that you have changed careers a few times, which gets me very, very excited. So let's start there. Tell me a little bit about what's been going on in your life for the past couple of decades that brought you to genealogy. 
All right. Well, I feel like I've come full circle because in college, I was a history major, really loved history, but didn't really know what to do with it. And, you know, at the time, you know, college in the early 80s, yeah, the best advice that I got was, well, become a librarian. So I got I get a master's in library science right away, become a librarian. I'm I'm a good librarian, good reference librarian, really enjoy chasing facts and looking up things and being creative with sources. And and if you look at the threads that have followed me throughout my career, that is the thread that I am still using every single day. Um, I can't even tell you what that means that you said that because this com- it typically comes up with most of the guests I interview, and it seems to be the thing that's so overwhelming to people who are stuck. What is their passion? What is their true joy? What makes them happy? And I always say that you're probably already on the right path. You just don't know exactly what it looks like. Maybe you've taken certain parts of your past and your joy and your experiences for granted. And there it was. And you've just reinvented yourself based on something that you've always really, really loved. I love that. Well, and I did it. I've reinvented myself twice. So I'm I'm 59 now, but when I was 39, it was when the internet became big and I was working in a public library and I was, you know, in a position where, you know, literally I'm not getting promoted until someone dies or retires. Mm. And I had gotten more and more interested in consumer research. So I had read some books like um, Faith Popcorn's book, Clicking, you know, trying to understand why people buy those kinds of things. And I decided I wanted to go into marketing research. So I did something a little crazy. I left my librarian job and became the world's oldest intern at a (laughs) At a digital marketing agency, try to imagine, you know, I've been a librarian and now I'm working at a company that was, it was, had a woman founder, a really interesting company. And she had founded her whole business on serving Apple computer as a consultant. Mm. And, you know, they had the Victoria's Secret account for a while. And so, you know, you can imagine that this is a radical change from working in a public library. And, you know, I, it, they would literally go on pitches, you know, like a dog and pony show, you know, where they would try to, you know, pitch their ideas to a new to to bring in a new client. Yeah. So I got hired after just a few months, but because the thing that they valued about me was my ability to find anything. Mm-hmm. So I was able to do business research for them. I was able to look at what consumers needed. I was able to look at the competition. I was all of those things that you need for marketing. So I was able to provide the strategic foundation that was needed to be able to um, serve the clients well. And I ended up working in agencies for 20 years. So I was at that agency, went to another one that was healthcare focused and went back to the first one, which eventually got acquired by IBM. And that's where I left a year ago. Hmm. Um, And I I was a corporate market researcher and a strategist, but all of the things that I did there built upon what I had done as a librarian, which was finding information. But when you go into corporate research, then you're often doing research with things like focus groups and surveys and interviews and and so on. So it becomes more than just where to find things on the internet, but also how to talk to people and how to, you know, pull out those nuggets and be able to use them in your marketing strategy. So everything that I did in the agency helped me get to where I wanted to start my own company. And the spark that it took was 
About seven years ago, my husband and I owned a Victorian house that's a money pit. (laughs) (laughs) We now don't own it because we we downsized into a more appropriate house if you're trying to start a business (laughs) And, and moving towards retirement, right? Uh, It's more financially smart where we live now. But I got so excited about who lived in that house. And I started researching who lived in the house and found out really cool things about them. Like we had a young woman graduate from Ohio State University and then get married the same day in our front parlor. This is in 1912. It was really, really interesting. And that got me interested in genealogy, but it had always been a roadblock for me because I'm adopted and so is my husband. So, hmm. but we found, I found our birth families and I got bit by the genealogy bug. Okay. And, hang and on a second. Hang, hang on a second. Hey, yeah. <laughs> you just, you just blew past something really interesting. So you were adopted. So what did you make that mean? That history wasn't for you, that your personal history wasn't for you? Because your background history was clearly for you. So what did adopted, being adopted, mean for you? I wasn't as interested in researching the family that adopted me. I wasn't. And and plus, my cousin had already done that. And I really wanted to research my own genetic family. And fortunately, I was able to locate them pretty quickly and was I'm now able to research my own bloodlines. Okay. So again, hang on a minute here. So do you think it was your, it was really your lack of interest that prevented you from digging into that rather than technology or any of the online services these days? It was really my lack of interest because I always probably had the skills to learn how to be a good genealogist. Yeah, it sounds like it. What's so cool to me about genealogy is it takes everything that I've done for 35 years and it's like on steroids. It's so much more difficult. And it is genealogy is really tough because the records, the farther you go back in time, there are fewer records and they're harder to locate. So a lot of things in the in the US at least are on the county level. And That means that every time you're researching somebody, you've got to figure out what county am I in? Has it always been this county or was it another county previously? And are the records at the courthouse or are the records online? Have they been moved to an archive? It's this whole litany of things that makes it difficult to do genealogy. And it's a lot more difficult than ancestry makes it seem. Yeah, no, I hear that. But again, we're going to we're going a little too fast because you're so interesting. (laughs) So I am really fascinated by human behavior. So what you just said about you being not really that interested because it wasn't your personal genetic history is fascinating. And then was it that marriage in your parlor that opened you up a little bit to say, hmm, maybe I do have all the skills. Maybe I might be a little curious. Like, what was that moment like where you made that decision to pursue your personal history? I was researching my own house, but I was also volunteering for our local architectural preservation, historic preservation group. I would do research to give tours, so research about different historic buildings in town. And I always would put in the piece about the people who live there. 
And I just got more and more interested in, I can do this. Uncovering these stories is fascinating to me. And I came to the decision that, yes, I want to learn who my real family is. Now, the tricky part is when you're adopted and your parents, your adoptive parents are still living, is to try to do that without being hurtful to them. Mm -hmm. It was funny, though. My parents were in their late 80s when I tell them this, and they laughed at me and said, we can't, with your research skills, we can't believe it's taken you this long. <laughs> That is so cute. You know, one thing we have in common is my father was adopted and I'm step adopted. And that kind of put me in the adoption world a little bit. But my father never was interested in knowing anything about his history. And because where he was adopted, the records were closed. I had no access to them. And what's interesting is in 2020, in January, there's a change in legislation. Now the records would be available to me once I make a proper submission and everything. And of course, now I can't find my birth certificate, so I need to <laughs> figure that out first. Um, <laughs> right. But when that opens up, it can really change things. But it's interesting that my dad was never interested. And his sister, who just passed a few years ago, she was also adopted and also not interested. But I am interested. Right. And, and there, so there, are, there are people who are not, I mean, my husband, not interested our daughter, our daughter is like, well, I am dad. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. Well, um, it is like yeah. a perfect storm because you have a ton of skills, mad skills to uncover this. And I think what your mom said is, is really funny. <laughs> <laughs> like for sure. It's, it's the perfect storm. It's obvious. It's like, why wouldn't you apply those skills? But somehow when we think about life, it's why we have so many limiting beliefs. We just compartmentalize things and and just because you were awesome in market research and you're able to scout things out about your, your house and all these other things, that switch to your own personal information must have been massive. So when you got the idea, did you dive in right away or did you have to really think about it for a little while? I found my family pretty easily because in, where, in the state I was adopted in, they actually will do a search for you and, wow. and then the court intermediary will contact your birth parents. And in my case, only my mother was named on my birth certificate and that's pretty common, but she absolutely wanted to meet me. So it was, that was one of the most shocking days of my life, you know, interesting, exciting. My husband and daughter and I were all just kind of in shock that, you know, we have this whole other family and we, got the names and then started really researching them. We kind of found them on Facebook pretty quickly, you know, and found pictures of them. And my husband's looking at my birth mom going, this has to be your mother. I think we found the family. And then wow. we eventually were actually put in contact with them. And I've seen them many, many times since, but that really got me hooked. But then, you know, the wow. career, the career paths, which, I started on a path five years ago to get to where I am now, which is to be working as a professional genealogist in my own business. But I took a number, I am pretty, <laughs> I don't know if you follow the Enneagrams, but I'm a, I'm a six and I'm a planner. So, you know, I, I am very much about trying to move obstacles out of my way and planning ahead and making sure that things are, you know, as de-risked as I can make them. So. 
I work to become an accredited genealogist. There are not a lot of people who are credentialed in genealogy. I think it's about 800 between two different credentialing programs. Mm. So I wanted to start my business with those letters after my name. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to make sure that we were being financially smart about it as we were approaching retirement. And that I had the business set up appropriately. So I put all of those moves into place, including downsizing our house and and so on before I decided to leave my corporate job. Wow. Okay. So how long were you thinking about leaving your corporate job before you actually left? Five years. Five years, which sounds like a long time, but it also took, it took several years of coming into genealogy to become at the top of it. To, you know, even though I came in at a much higher point than many people do because I had been a researcher forever and I know how to look for quality research, do quality research, be able to evaluate records, those sorts of things. You know, I actually it, it don't still think took a while. I actually don't think it, it's necessarily a long time. Like it depends what you expect. Your expectations were such that you wanted it as low risk as possible, you wanted credentials, you wanted a lot of developed skill. You wanted to be at the top of your game. Like, I don't know. I think it's also realistic that sometimes to get what you want, you need to plan. Right. And I was making progress forward the entire time. So it felt, you know, I was just putting a plan in place and executing the plan and, you know, got there. And it sounds like you had a lot of belief, too, that it was absolutely (laughs) going to happen as soon as you put these things in place. Well, and, and then... So the the funniest part about the whole thing is the day that I launched, well, you know, I'd had my business going at a low rate for a while, but the day I went full time in my business was April Fool's Day 2020. (laughs) So you you all know where we all were April Fool's Day 2020, right? (laughs) We're all in shock. (laughs) Exactly. What a great day to start my entrepreneurial journey. That's a good one. That's a good one. All right. So two job changes and now you're well into this new career. And I love that um, that you were so careful and really thinking about what it was that you wanted and also really appreciating all the skills that you developed that all made sense on your path. Like your purpose is careful research and sharing and telling stories. That's what it sounds like. Well, it is in the, I've come full circle. I'm now working in history. Um, Finally, I found a history career that actually pays. And (laughs) I, and, but I built upon everything that I've done. It's not just from being a librarian and being a very good researcher, but it also was all the skills I picked up at working at an agency. So I knew how to write a statement of work, how to manage a client project, how to Um, do a bid, how to work with clients, how, you know, some of those things, painful to learn at the time, it's easier for me now than for a lot of people who, who go into professional genealogy to the point where to push my business ahead, I have been seeking out coaching from other entrepreneurs and people in different spaces. So they're not genealogists, they're other types of business. And I'm in a mastermind with women in other types of business because I've realized I need to get my inspiration from others to be That's able- That's great insight. Yeah, so am I. It's really, really important. And business building and 
we all have what to learn from each other, right? It's so, so good. You have to build a community too when you're home based. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, right. it's just you sitting there <laughs> staring <laughs> at the wall, staring at the yeah, screen. Absolutely. Awesome. So tell me a little bit more about um, why you think midlife is such a good time to get some perspective on your family. Absolutely. So it gives you perspective. So I can tell you stories of, you know, as I've researched my family and as I've helped clients research their families, you know, for example, nearly every family lost a child or children to disease or injury. Um, Men were often married two or three times because women died um, in childbirth or other ways. And I feel like when you study that historical context, you put your modern day troubles a lot into perspective. You know, the things that we, you know, sometimes people joke about first world problems, you know, it's, it's like this century problems too. Because when you realize that, you know, you stand on the shoulders of your ancestors and some of the decisions that they made mean that you live where you do, or your family has wealth, or you don't have wealth, or you know, and you start to put together how you got to where you are. And it's fascinating to be able to kind of open your mind to that. And another thing too is, if you're someone who maybe is struggling with your current family, or maybe you're an adoptee and you don't find receptive people, you know, who are living, who, you know, were your genetic ancestors, even if you go back a generation or two, you always can research your, your ancestors and you can learn about the longer ago family and still get a sense of who you are. Hmm. Wow, that's so interesting. One of the things that um, you talk about that I, I really wanted you to share here was thinking about family legacy. And I've explored this a little bit with, with women as we age because the way I was thinking about it was there comes a point where the torch is passed to you. So grandmothers are in charge for a while. Then your mother is in charge for a while. This is, you know, if people are alive and then all of a sudden you're in charge of everything from a Thanksgiving dinner to who knows what other family traditions and stories, but there's kind of an awareness or a bit of a wake up call that if you don't, take on that role. Nobody else will. Mm -hmm. And that kind of shared history may stop with you. Right. And it's informal. Yes. And you're, you're the bridge between the past and the future. And your role as the bridge becomes a lot more important, the older that you are, as you just said. And I think of legacy as legacy is a purposeful activity of capturing everything of value to pass to future generations. And a lot of people think about legacy as being about money. And it's a lot more than just about money. It's about your family's traditions and stories, your knowledge, your experience, and your values. So I would define legacy as the thoughtful and intentional process of deciding on gifts to share with future generations. That is so beautiful. I think we need to pause for a second and just appreciate that. I love that so much. And I have to say, over the last few years, I had an auntie that I was close to on my birth mother's side and on my father's side, both pass. 
And I had taken for granted that, you know, they were always going to be there. They were the keepers of the family history. They're the ones that both knew me when I was born and they knew both of my parents when they were young. And now they're not here. And a couple of times things have come up and I'm like, oh, they'll help me with that or they'll fill in that blank and they're not here. So I've noticed um, with the personal situation, I've noticed the when the the uh, matriarchs of the family no longer want to host the large dinners, mm-hmm. that gets kind of informal. All of a sudden, it's not happening, and you step in. And this also this information filling in the blanks. Can you repeat that one more time? Your mm-hmm. definition of it, because it's just wow. Legacy is the thoughtful and intentional process of deciding on gifts to share with future generations. Oh my gosh, that is so good. And you know, the intentional part of it is what the work I do with midlife women is all about. Instead of being on autopilot, chaotic life, we're going to get intentional and and make sure that we don't have regrets. And I can see there's just so many areas. (laughs) And I know so many people have said, oh, I wished I had that conversation with so-and-so, or I wished I really understood what that problem was or the history was. Mm-hmm. It's so, so good. So what, do you, what would you think now that you've been at this for a while, what is the main reason that people reach out to you? They reach out for several reasons. Sometimes it's someone who has done a little family research and they're stuck and you know, need professional firepower to, <laughs> to move it on. Because you know, the farther back you get in time, particularly before 1850, it gets pretty difficult. And why is 1850 the number that you just said, the date? Well, in the U.S., that was the year that the census started naming everybody in a family. So if you look at a census before 1850, it only named the head of household, most often the man. Hmm. And so the women and the children were represented by little tick marks in age brackets, but it was not it's pretty difficult to figure out it, it. Like, for example, it's very hard to figure out who a woman's father is before 1850. Cause unless wow. he named her in his will, there's often, you know, very few records that would give you that information. Now, if you're in certain parts of, you know, the U S and in Canada where it was more established earlier on. And I mean, in the U S that would be the Northeast. Then there were more, church records, town records, and so on existed a whole lot earlier than they did in the Midwest where I live, or certainly in the Western United States, which sometimes, you know, records didn't really kick into gear till the 1870s. So it really just, you know, kind of really depends on where your family is from. The other thing that people come to me for is a good example of of the type of client that I, I serve is someone who realizes they don't know anything about their family. And an example would be um, someone came to me and he and his sister are the only ones left. And Mm -hmm. they're in their early 50s and their parents unfortunately died of cancer within the last couple of years. And their parents were in their 70s. So it's the, you know, it's this gentleman, it's his sister, and it's the sister's husband and kids who are left. And so what he wanted to do was to, he said, I don't feel like we know who our family is, and I want to do a family tree. So I researched from their grandparents back to their great, great grandparents, that was 14 couples. 
and created a few paragraphs about each family, documented who they were, so that a beautiful family tree could be created, but also to start telling some of the stories. This is what he wanted to present to his sister, and then, you know, hence her children. So I love to do projects and assist people like that because it was going from knowing nothing to knowing something about all of your lines. And, you know, you find really cool things. Like, for example, we found that one of his great-grandfathers had been in the Civil War for three years. And he was in Kentucky, but he fought for the North. Hmm. So, you know, interesting things like that, that you go, well, I'd really like to follow up on that because there's a whole lot more to that story. And that's what that kind of research can do is it can start to reveal where the interesting stories are. Now, what about you? What interesting stories did you uncover about your, <laughs> your birth family? Oh, absolutely. My favorite ancestor is a, is a man named William, who is my fourth great-grandfather. He was you know, born in the 1760s and died in 1840. But this man did a lot in his life, and I'm still trying to figure it all out. But he first appears at age 21 in a tax record in far eastern Tennessee. And this was the area of Tennessee where all of these men lived called the Overmountain Men who were defying the British. And they were, you know, we're going to live here whether the British say that we can or not during the revolution. And then they decide to form their own state. Uh, Google the lost state of Franklin. So my ancestor, William, signed that petition. That's kind of crazy. And then he marries. He moves to Kentucky. He's in a town there. He builds the courthouse. He builds the jail. He raises a bunch of children, does all these things that I've been able to uncover through records. And it's really interesting what you can get from reading, say, an old court record. You know, there didn't used to be a highway department. So men were assigned to build a road from point X to point Y. And you can learn a lot about who they were, you know, moving around with and and, um, interrelating with. Wow. Same ancestor just up and moves in 1814 into Illinois, crosses the Ohio River, goes up to Illinois because Illinois had opened by then. And that's a a key reason that people moved in that era was because his sons were coming of age. There was no more land available in Kentucky. But if he moved to Illinois, well, they bought up a lot of land when they moved there. And then the Methodist Church in Illinois was founded on his farm. And one of his sons hung out with Abraham Lincoln in 1840. It's in a newspaper at a meeting. (laughs) So, you know, I'm giving you the, the kind of like, what the heck look. <laughs> wow, I know. This, you is all one, <laughs> this is all one ancestor who did all wow. these things. And all of that was possible to uncover by just doing you know, pretty deep research into the records that are still available. That's amazing. That's amazing. So you're really blowing people's minds. <laughs> but you can write that as a descriptor for your job. <laughs> What do you do? I blow people's uh, minds. Blow your, blow your mind with records you had no idea existed. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Do you think that people get into trouble, you know, by doing quick research and DNA stuff without the context? Yeah, I, I feel like I, as a genealogist speaking publicly, I need to come down on 
what to be careful about with DNA because it happened to me. Mm. <laughs> so if you take a DNA test, you need to be prepared for literally any truth to come out. So this could be that one of your parents, you have a half sibling you didn't know about, for example. This mm-hmm. happened to a high school friend of mine. For me, you know, I had a situation where my parents were unmarried and so on. But just a year ago, I had a half sibling emerge on my dad's side. He, he suddenly did a test on ancestry. And here we are connected with a large amount of DNA. And we, after talking, realized that we were both children of the same man. And so it can happen to anyone. So if you are going to do a DNA test, be forewarned that it may reveal things that are unsettling or hurtful. Mm. It may introduce you to amazing family you never knew existed. So it really depends. Um, you know, if you're adopted, you probably do need to do a DNA test. Uh, when you were earlier, you were referencing adoption records becoming available. Mm. And that's true in some states. A lot of the time, though, your father won't be named on those. So, you know, to get to your father, you may need to use DNA. And I'm working on a project for a client today about this very thing where we're trying to figure out who her father is. Well, she has some pretty strong matches at the second cousin level, which mean they share great grandparents. And I have to build their trees to try to figure out um, how they connect to each other and then which men mathematically could be my client's father. But yeah, I do that kind of work. This is fascinating. You're the perfect person for doing this work with your background, but it sounds like you had to take some genetics along the way too. Well, yeah. Um, DNA is really interesting. Yes, you have to understand the, you know, how it's inherited and that, you know, when you take that test that you see ancestry offering for, you know, $59 at the holidays, you know, think twice before you take that because it could, you know, could reveal things. But it's those tests and those 10 million people who have tested that make it possible for us to make those connections and also possible for um, some of my colleagues work to solve long ago crimes. So there is a TV show um, called The Genetic Detective with the very famous genealogist Cece Moore. And she's doing exactly the same thing that I'm talking about to find an adoptee's parents. She's doing that to find people who committed crimes many, many years ago, cold cases. Wow, that's amazing. So here you are. Oh, there's one other question I wanted to ask you before, I, before we conclude. I noticed in your work, you're working in a geographical part of the United States. Can you talk a little bit about that? And if you go beyond that or why you stay in that area, what, what's that about? Exactly. So I'm an accredited genealogist um, through ICAPGen. Uh, it is a credentialing body. And the way accreditation works is that you focus on a region. And my region is U.S. Midwest, which meant that I had to become extremely familiar with records in the Midwest United States, which is all the states between Ohio and Missouri. And I'm from Missouri and I live in Ohio and that felt good to me. Um, <laughs> you know, so I do a lot of my you know, I do a lot of my research in the Midwest and I, I focus on the Midwest. And so I had to be tested on it. So you're tested, you're evaluated by other people who have, are, are already credentialed and, and that's how you achieve your accreditation. So 
I do research all over the U.S. So I do not do research in, in other countries. Genealogists refer to other people, other genealogists yeah. a lot, because you want somebody who can do research in your geographic area. That said, in the United States, particularly Midwest and farther west, records tend to be kind of similar. So, you know, I'm often, I'm often uh, stepping outside my, my geographic area because Along the way, I also had to pick up knowledge of all the different record types and to know how to, you know, accurately use probate or census or church records or um, court records. There's many kinds of things that may lead to evidence about your ancestors. Wow, this is so exciting and so fun. And I love that you changed careers a few times. And I love that you were always on your path. And it really seems like you found your calling. Like it makes so much sense when you think about where you came from and your passion for history. One thing that I really love is to go and to help my clients do is to go visit the places that their ancestors were. And I love a then and now. I love looking at what it looks like now, finding old photographs of what it looked like then, or finding an old map of what it looked like then. I can tell you the exact piece of land your ancestors owned in 1800 and find it for you on a map and show you exactly how to drive to it. And it's so meaningful. You know, I, I had a friend that I helped and her ancestors had traveled the Oregon Trail and we happened to be um, on a trip together in Kansas City. There are places in Kansas City where you can still see the ruts of the Oregon Trail and you can stand there where the wagons pulled up the hill after they crossed a creek. And she stood there and just was like, you know, so touching to actually imagine them going west and to stand in the place where it happened. And, and I love to help people have those experiences. Wow, that's awesome. Um, now, you also have something free that you have available to listeners. And so how can they get in touch with you? Right. So you can find me on my website. It's heritagebridge.com. And there's a contact form there. There's a lot about me. My blog is there. You can sign up for my newsletter and get some more family history stories. If you'd like to get started doing your own family history. And there are some, you know, the, the most important advice I can give you is talk to your older relatives now. Do mm -hmm. that before you do anything else and document, ask them questions, ask them to tell you the stories. Because even though I can uncover a lot of things, there's a lot of personal stories that never made it into records. And you're going to have to get that from the people involved. So make sure you do that first. But I have a download for your listeners called Four Ways to Build Your Family History Legacy. And you can get it at heritagebridge.com slash women in the middle. All, all those words are run together, women in the middle. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much. I'm going to put those links in the show notes, of course. You know, you just reminded me of something that I did find confusing when looking into my family history. I ended up being the keeper of all the family photographs for a hundred years. I have them in a box. I inherited the box. And oh my gosh, we had a flood once. And Ooh. it happened when I wasn't home. And these were in a Tupperware type of plastic container in a crawl space. And when I realized there was a flood, I go running into the crawl space 
and everything. There was nine inches of water that had come and gone and everything was toppled over. And I went, the Rosenstein family photos. And I ran to the corner of the room and it was like there was divine intervention. The two boxes of photographs were not touched. Oh, I'm so happy for you. (laughs) Oh, I was at my wits end those few seconds. So I think my grandmother, Ethel, was looking over (laughs) us at that particular moment. But something interesting happened. I got involved with a website called Genie.com a long time ago, maybe Mm -hmm. before some of these more popular ones now. But I did a fair bit of work. There's somebody, a couple of people in my family who were uh, very into genealogy. One was formally trained as well, but not doing a business like you are. Anyway, so it was in pretty good shape and it was fun to connect people who might never see each other again or perhaps never met at all. You know, because I was the keeper of the photographs, I started scanning and uploading some of these photographs from the early 1900s. And some of them I knew who people were and some I didn't. And what really threw me was seeing somebody at five or 12 or 20 is very different than seeing them as a 60-year-old person. And I couldn't always tell who these people were. And I had a delightful experience once where I posted something with some cousins of my father. And right away, she said, oh, that's me when I was two. Like She knew right (laughs) away that that picture was her. And that was just really a fun way to share photographs because when we grew up, we were thinking the only way to do this is to schlep out to some small town and whoever knows where mm-hmm. and physically show somebody a photograph. And now with group think, there are lots right. of ways to do this. And I just noticed um, recently on my husband's side, one of his first cousins is doing this on Facebook and she's put together a Facebook group of all kinds of relatives that never met and live in different countries. And they're having a grand old time and they're sharing photographs and well, stuff. And, and, <laughs> lots yeah, and, of fun. And my family history story. So if you're adopted, you really appreciate the people like you who take the time to upload photographs because that may be the only way you ever see photographs of your ancestors. And so my daughter and I had really studied um, my second great grandfather who had fought in the Civil War. And she knew quite a bit about him and that he had been injured and things that had happened because we read his pension file. Civil War pension files are magical. So if you have a Civil War ancestor, they're, you know, rich, hundreds of pages sometimes of information about them and their lives. Wow. Well, so a cousin had posted a picture and my daughter and I are looking at this picture and she's like, that's Adam. And I'm like, well, how do you know? She said, well, look in the picture. You can tell his eye is injured. You know, his, one of his eyes was half closed. And she knew from, his re- from the research that that eye had been injured in the Civil War at Resaca in Georgia. And then we found, you know, later pictures, the two boys in the picture with him are his two sons. And it was amazing because we had been researching this man for months. And here is this photograph of him with his two boys. And, you know, now there are websites that will colorize those pictures for you, that will clean up those pictures for you. So digitally, the technology is really good that really brings these people to life. Oh, my gosh. Lori, what a fun interview. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for doing this important work. And I love the context that you put this in, um, in terms of legacy and the importance now of having these conversations. And like I always say on this podcast, pick up the phone, 
don't just text. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't just send a Facebook message. Pick up the phone. And this is just really encouraging that message of connecting with your family as much as possible while you can share these stories and put them in some kind of a format that it is easy to pass on and that we do have a role in that. Right. It's meaningful if you can involve your children in that now. It's meaningful for them to hear the stories. It's meaningful to document the stories so that they have them 30, 40 years from now. Oh, my gosh. And they would love a fresh story because all I hear is all my repeats. They're like, mommy, you are repeating that story. You told me that 10 times. They need new content. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Well, thank you, so, thank you so much for joining. And there's one tiny other little fact that we have to share before we say goodbye. We just discovered that we were both in band in high school and we were having a good old time before oh, yeah. we started the interview. We both love marching band and had amazing experiences. Right. Total band geek talk. <laughs> Total. So I played saxophone and Lori switched from flute to Dude, baritone. Baritone. And we both played in high school and college. Right. right. So much fun. You don't leave band behind. You can be 40 years out of high school or college and you're still thinking about it. A hundred percent. So I wonder, I wonder how far we go back to find other ancestors who played in the band. I mean, I played my mom's saxophone. Mm -hmm. It finally died because right. I, I was not kind to it, <laughs> but I did well, play it. Well, you know, ancestors who are in the 1900s, pretty often you can find digitized newspapers and find a lot of newspaper stories about them. So, oh, what a great idea. Who knows? Oh, so much fun. <laughs> so much fun. Okay. Thank you so much. And remember yeah. to check the show notes um, for more information on how to contact Lori. All thanks. Right. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Okay, that's it for this episode. I know that you loved meeting Lori. First, I just love sharing another story about seeing a thread of clues going throughout somebody's lifetime like Lori's. And, you know, she could see things that she always loved. And she could kind of, it was obvious that her path and career were like she had all the makings for it. It's almost. It almost seems like it would be impossible for her not to be doing what she's doing. Her career choice and the path and, and all the little things that she tried along the way, not little things like serious pivots in her career, it all makes perfect sense. And that's what I advise you to do too. If you are confused or stuck about what it is you want to do, take a look at those clues. Look for them. What are the similarities, the threads? that are really, really going through your life. Second, oh my gosh, Lori really shared some important perspective about how important it is for midlife women to appreciate their roles in sharing family legacy. I really appreciated the conversation with Lori. It's so in keeping with being intentional in midlife. For sure, not knowing some of your family history can become a regret. I know so many people that tell me they wished they asked more questions or spent time to record some conversations with some of the seniors in their family. So in the spirit of regret-proofing your life, really think about what information you want to know and share in your family and do what you can to create that legacy. So good. All right. As you know, my focus as a midlife coach is to help you waste less time spinning and feeling stuck about aging, about empty nest, about relationships, about your career, 
about being more compassionate toward yourself, about all of it. It's time to get excited about your life again. Remember, being the queen of your brain domain is the best way to be, and I am here to help. This is what you'll learn when you hire me as your coach. Learning the mindfulness concepts are one thing, but when it comes to applying the concepts, that's when you really benefit from coaching. And that's why you should join the Finally First Club. We are waiting for you. It's my monthly midlife membership that's your one-stop home away from home, really. That's what I call it, for coaching, community, and connection. You can finally get that fresh perspective and learn and grow in a community of like-minded women. And it's just gonna help you sail into your next chapter with a big smile on your face. Why not do that? (laughs) Join us now at www.iamfinallyfirst.com. For show notes and links, head over to www.coachwithsusie.com. And to get a copy of my new book, 50 Ways to Celebrate Life After 50, check out Amazon or your favorite online bookseller or go to www.50waystocelebrate.com. Let's do this, ladies. It's time for you to put yourself first, one thought at a time. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.